Today, we're talking chefs branding on products, the Japanese traditions of fine dining. I'm giving away an old issue of Lucky Peach in this episode, and Malcolm Livingston, the old pastry chef at Noma's new project in the Bronx. Welcome back to the show, folks, and more importantly, welcome to 2018. I'm so excited to be here. I missed you guys. At least I say that. Last week, uh, the episode went live. I didn't miss a week in 2017, which I was insanely proud of. But uh, it was an audio-only episode, and every single time... Hey, Ryan, every single time I uh, do those, uh, I miss you guys because I don't get to see you. Last time we did an interview, I tried to stream a live video of the interview, and we had some audio issues. So I did a cheeky little workaround, uh, copied some other YouTubers who are doing podcasts where they just kind of like post a photo and then they just roll the audio over that. So you get to kind of see who you're hearing from, but at the same time, it's not so, uh, it's not an actual video of the actual interview. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, my name is Justin Kana. This is episode 46 of The Emulsion, a show where I talk all about the news stories that matter to me as I navigate my career as a professional chef. Thank you so much for joining in. We are going to get right into it in a second, but first, some housekeeping stuff. As per usual, this show is entirely supported by you folks. We have no sponsors, no ads, no nothing. Uh, I have a platform that I'm currently on called Patreon. It is the easiest way for viewers and listeners like you to support creators like me. I get to keep an insane amount of your hard-earned money to make this show better. Patreon takes a very nominal cut, but for those of you that have already been following along on social with me, I've been dabbling in the uh, cryptocurrency space. YouTube now has a... uh, sponsor feature on big channels. I So basically the, the punchline here is I'm not 100% sure that I'm going to stick with Patreon in 2018. Uh, as more and more people are starting to see the benefits of these programs where uh, audience members can directly support creators, uh, it's changing. The landscape is changing, and I don't want to put all of my eggs in one Patreon basket, uh, but I'm going to stay super transparent with that stuff for you guys. I just want you to be aware that I'm paying attention to other players in the kind of social tipping space uh, where I can create more with less ads for you folks. Um, Personally, I'm still in love with Patreon. To those of you that support me there for as little as $1 a month, you guys are my favorite. Thank you. But uh, I just want to insert that tiny little rant at the start of this show because it is your money, and I I, I do want you to know what's happening with it. So patreon.com slash justinkana. Check it out. But regardless, this show is always free for you guys, and I'm happy to make that a thing. But next up, I want to talk uh, to you guys a little bit about interview guests, and I want to work with you guys on this one. I need your help. I want to make sure that 2018 is the most exciting year for the show yet. Uh, and to do that, I want to know who you guys want to hear from, right? Last week was a two Michelin starred pastry chef, Jeannie Kwan. We've done food critics and Instagram famous bloggers and food entrepreneurs. I want to do more to bring value to you. So please, in the comments, or if you guys are scrolling through Instagram and see a chef that you like, And you're like, I think her and Justin would really jam well together. Or like, man, I wonder what Justin would ask him. Uh, Tell me. Slide in my DMs. Or hit me up on Twitter, at Justin underscore Kana, and hashtag The Emulsion. Because it's the hottest time ever uh, for podcasts. And because I happen to have one, that gives you guys incredible access to chefs or photographers or sommeliers or whoever you want me to talk to. Uh, I'm, I'm totally happy to reach out to them and be like, hey, one of my audience members wants to hear from you. Can we do an interview? And plus, by suggesting these guests, you get first dibs on the questions. So it's just something I want you guys to be aware of that you have available as a fan of this show. And obviously, because I'm asking uh, so sincerely right now, it's first come, first serve. And if this takes off, 
it's not going to be as easy to get your requests filled. So there's that. Uh, lastly, and most importantly, iTunes just released their, uh, stats capability. I can actually see who's listening on iTunes now without doing a weird workaround. And I've been paying attention, uh, to the podcasting space and it's on my resolutions for quarter one of 2018 to get the podcast on Spotify for you folks. It's a little bit more work for me on the back end, And I know a lot of you listen on YouTube, but I want it to make, uh, have it be another option for wherever you listen. Whew. That's housekeeping. It's done. Let's get into the show now. Uh, today's beverage, uh, the coffee that my girlfriend and I normally drink is not in stock right now. Uh, they, they, we normally drink an Ethiopian. This is a Sumatran coffee. It's, it's all right. Yeah, it's, it's all right. I'm not, I'm not crazy about it. Sumatrans are normally okay. My face is white because it's bright outside, man. Uh, first story today comes from someone who I've interacted with, uh, relatively minimally on social media, but definitely want to interview in 2018. Anders Husa, who is a Norwegian food blogger, uh, published a story that Pjoltergeist, the infamously grungy but solid casual restaurant in Oslo, will be closing in 2018. Uh, June 2nd specifically is that date. And there's some interesting insight to this story that I want to kind of tiptoe around a little bit because as much as I trust Anders as a friend of the head chef, he is the only source that comes up when you search this story. So I want to make sure that that I make that abundantly clear as I cover this story. He says it himself. He says, quote, I don't want to speculate on the reasons for the shutdown, but it's unlikely to be economic causes. The guys at Pjoltergeist have allowed themselves almost three months of summer holiday every year, which is unheard of in the restaurant business, end quote. And he adds to that, quote, a little bird also told me that Otley and the Lava Restaurant Group might have some plans together next year, but this has been neither confirmed nor denied. It makes sense, though, seeing how Otley is a good friend of Evan Ramsvik, having previously worked as his sous chef at the now-closed Yiliale, which closed last year. That would mean that Suzanne and Sve are on their own to develop a new project or perhaps return to Bergen where they originally started their careers, end quote. And this might not make 100% to those of you not familiar with the Norwegian restaurant landscape, but as someone who worked in Bergen for two and a half years at arguably the best restaurant in the city, this is a big deal that these kind of players are potentially coming together for a project, right? I know Body and uh, Sebastian are listening. Do you guys have any details on this story? Uh, Let me know in the comments. I would love some of you uh, to be little birdies of the emulsion uh, for me. Anders has his little birdies. I would love for some of you guys to be mine. Uh, But next up is a story I wanted to cover all about chefs licensing and branding on food and tools and packages uh, of towels and all that stuff because it's something that I never thought I would deal with personally, but it's an interaction I'm becoming more and more familiar with, and I want you to be prepared if you ever come across this scenario in your career, not just because we're unfortunately covering Robert Irvine on this show, but because there's other chefs in this story like Dominique Crenn and Fabio Vivani that are also getting approached by these brands, Uh, so it's not just happening to the TV guys anymore. Um, So let's get into it. Uh, This isn't a story about a scandal or an amazing development, but it's more a profile on how these deals look, these chef licensing deals. And maybe you can come away with some takeaways. So uh, a lot of worries that a lot of chefs have when they get approached with these projects, me included, might, uh, with their face on it and name associated with a package of, you know, say frozen food is how is the quality, right? Like all of us grow up Uh, in the industry using the nicest commercial kitchens and amazing knives and all this stuff. And when you're catering towards the home cook and people who are in it for mostly profit, 
it's easy to let quality slip. So that's the initial questions that a lot of us ask. So does it measure up? Uh, Dominique Crenn has Michelin stars and there's trust and standards that she should hold near and dear, but the brand sees the profile of this, uh, famous chef and they want it, right? Uh, Jeff Lotman, who is a consultant in the space says, quote, you need profile. No matter how great the chef is, if I haven't heard of him, I won't buy. Once you have that profile, you as the licensor or brand owner are in the stronger position, end quote. He also says that restaurants are the biggest area for growth in these chefs, which we've seen success with in chefs like Joel Robuchon and Emeril Lagasse and more. The name just drives people to come back. There's a trust element there, even though the chef isn't guaranteed to be there. And just to interject my uh, tiny opinion here, it's one of the reasons why I became dissuaded from uh, restaurants in general. Uh, I see the benefit. I see the potential for growth with licensing. I, I, I respect the game, the opportunity to scale, but there's just something in me right now in my career that just feels weird if I have my name on a place that serves food and I'm not cooking it, right? And so that's going to change and evolve for me. Uh, that, that's why with my pop-ups, with my private chef stuff, with everything that says Justin Kana on it, I'm there executing. And that is personally how I feel good going to sleep at night. But back to the article. Uh, there is some intense quality control that goes into making uh, things like frozen meals and products, uh, everything from touring packaging, packaging facilities to tweaking formulas, and even having to change recipes because how a frozen meal works and how a restaurant dish works are two very different animals, right? So uh, the article says, uh, this is a quote from William Madden, who is another consultant in the space, saying, quote, say a chef wants to make a circular moussaka with fresh sliced eggplant and a ground Australian veal as the base. That's a gr that's great in a restaurant where the veal you end up grinding is a byproduct of chops and so on, but manufacturers are not making these one at a time. The eggplants, for example, would just be instant quick freeze, uh, and every single piece of the eggplant would need to be used, not just the solid center. Then it has to be baked in a sheet pan, not a circle, to minimize waste, right? So you're seeing how when you take a restaurant dish that you can do custom one by one and you change it to be this kind of mass-produced thing, the vision changes, and that's where chefs definitely get frustrated in this entire process. Uh, there's also the classic food problem of profit, uh, saying that a Star Wars t-shirt could get a 12 to 14% profit, but 5% is the high in food, 2 to 3% being the norm. So that makes people question, uh, is it worth it or not? At scale, yes, maybe, but it's really hard to compete, right? The ultimate question uh, for me and a lot of chefs in this article has to do with legacy, right? Like, could that extra $100,000 a year from licensing your name to a restaurant give you an opportunity to align with a larger vision, right? Because, I mean, money talks, right? It, does it take away so much of your time doing these licensing deals that you can't even pursue other projects because you're getting customer complaints about your line of spatulas, for example? All questions you have to kind of answer for yourself if you have ambitions to be in that place in your career. But I definitely had my first experience working with brands last year, and it is 100% about leverage, right? Like, I have yet to be paid to make a video. I've gotten free product to review for you guys, but there's people on Instagram or YouTube or Facebook that will get thousands to talk about a dish or a knife or an experience. And I feel like that's where the world is going more and more. It is less about creating the next Wolfgang Puck's frozen pizza and more about, like, I have this amazing pizza I make, can you guys talk about it, right? Or can you give us a shout out or can you uh, talk positively about what we're doing? 
it's where the attention is, right? It used to be TV. It still is kind of TV, but it's shifting more and more to the internet. And of course, it's also reliant on brick and mortar restaurants, right? Where Wherever the attention is, that's where the leverage is. And brands want that to help skyrocket their sales. My question of the day is, if you had to put your face on something, what would it be? I have my apron that I made that I love, and I'm super interested in manufacturing my uh, waxed canvas, uh, stretchy-backed apron. That would be my answer, but again, comment at me. If you had to put your face or your name on a product that could be frozen food, that could be tools, that could be a restaurant concept, what would it be and why? I would love to know in the comments down below. Next up is a story from Eater that, again, is continuing the theme of last episode's podcast. To those of you new to the fine dining sphere, or maybe uh, for those of you that want an insight into the history of it, this article is called Japanese Influence on Modern Fine Dining. Uh, I'm linking it up in the show notes on justinkana.com so you guys can see the full article in case you want to dive deep. But I'm going to read you a few lines of it in case you aren't aware. Quote, modern kaiseki whose most famous practitioners like Yoshihiro Murata and Kunio Tukuoka are often second or third generation kaiseki chefs, dates to the post-war period in Japan and features highly structured multi-course meals that showcase micro-seasons where menus shift dramatically depending on the availability of ingredients. Another notable aspect of kaiseki is how visual it is, partly to showcase seasonality and partly to highlight and surprise the diner. Yes, there's foraging, end quote. So the article goes on to reference places like Manresa and Single Thread and chefs like Michel Bra, who all derive influence from Japanese cuisine and execution, emphasizing seasonality, highlighting vegetables, and looking at the experience as a flowing living thing instead of this kind of set or even a la carte menu. There is an interesting line about halfway through that says, quote, maybe after decades of being half-knowingly exposed to approaches from other culture, encountering the fully contextualized version is a thrill many Westerner, many Western diners mostly can't name. That parade of Japanese-ish plates at special occasion dinners has left non-Japanese diners both better prepared to appreciate the original and able to see what they've been missing. Beyond questions of credit and fairness, digging into the philosophy of kaiseki can save globalized fine dining from its worst excesses. Those tiny yet elaborate courses of peak season perfect ingredients are ripe for both fetishing gaze of chef's table and the snarky eye roll of diners wearing weary of cliché. Too often, these meals feel like a copy of a copy of a copy, a flower here and a sprig of moss there because that's what looks cool, rather than conveying depth beyond the spectacle. Kaiseki is not just pretty or challenging. It is a meal full of jokes, references, and stories that play on the tradition's formalized structure or the time of year. The level of thought and care that goes into kaiseki is also universal amongst the world's best chefs. Conceptual rigor and narrative, not unique ingredients or technical skill, are what can make this omnipresent style of dining transcendent. End quote. What's up, Stephen? Uh, so it's about the story, right? It has to be personal. And this is, again, why I want to emphasize how all of these stories tie in together. We covered that story the other day about Gagan being a guy who is leaving his tasting menu blowout restaurant to move to frickin' Japan and open a place with a menu that infuses his personality into the experience, right? If you get an incredible dish, it should have an identity. The experience should have an identity, right? Like you or me or anyone else could have just as easily grilled that eggplant or pickled that turnip or fried that that moss? What makes it yours? Uh, it's something that I'm diving deep into personally for 2018 with my menus for sure. 
And speaking of deep diving, I want to actually go one level further down in the story. One line of the article says, culinary influence is often messy and untraceable. And this is important as we are pretty high at the peak right now of the muddy waters of culture and borders in the culinary landscape, right? Back in the day, if you were an Indian dude or a Taiwanese girl or an Italian Danish person and wanted a restaurant, tough luck, right? Like you had to go to Britain or New York or Paris and learn from the best, these old school French cuisine uh, pioneers and open up a spot in a semi-large city if you wanted to make it big in fine dining, get the attention of Michelin, all of that. Now, I'm just one guy. I can barely keep up with all the spots opening in cities all over the world, not to mention the concepts that are springing up uh, everywhere, right? And like, to put it into perspective, that Italian-Danish reference that I made earlier, yeah, that's Relay in Copenhagen. It's not that outrageous. So my point here isn't that we've lost any cultural identity, and I'm the last person to be romantic about it, right? Like, I grew up in the Midwestern United States. My dad is from India. I'm saying that you have to look right now at now is the time to be truly you, right? Like, not subscribe to what everyone else wants you to be. If you're intensely passionate about pierogies, do it. Like, who's to say you can't do a pierogi tasting menu? if you're into the fine dining part, right? Like, it's intensely hard right now to claim to be an authentic or traditional anything because those lines are getting so blurred, right? Like, this might be my optimism getting the best of me, but with everyone being so inspired by Japan and Kaiseki in one way or another, how do you remove yourself from the competition? And these are all questions I'm asking myself, um, thinking out loud maybe, and I encourage you to do the same. There was a great little post uh, on Instagram, I saw from this week from Joshua Skeens, who is the chef at Cezanne in San Francisco, and he went to this place in LA called Shibumi, where they actually execute something called Capo Cuisine, which, yes, I did some research on. And it's funny, the sources say there is, quote, no clear definition of Capo Cuisine, but Skeen says it's the greatest of all time version of the counter style restaurants, and more or less sticking to the principles of to cut and to cook. That's it. So the idea being you have a bunch of ingredients, you have your knives, you cut, and it's usually over an open fire, um, counter style service with a few maybe small tables, but uh, Capo falls somewhere in between the traditional Kaiseki cuisine and the casual Izakaya cuisine. So Kaiseki offers the core, seasonal course menu of elaborately plated dishes, which are served in an environment that is serene, and Izakaya, on the other hand, offers an a la carte menu that consists of mostly small plates. Drinking is the focal point of Izakaya-style dining, and with Kapo, it is completely up to the chef. Which again, explore these other niche areas of these trends that you can kind of specialize in if you're interested in doing your own food down the line. Again, not something where I suggest you quit your job and find a chef at a capo restaurant to work for. It's just something that I've never heard of in my eight years doing this. I, I just want to share it with you. Next up is a bit of a look back at Lucky Peach. There was a legacy piece from the now closed food publication and its impact on the media side of things. Coffee sip. There was no single, and I'm quoting the article now, quote, there was no single homogenous food media, of course, nor is there one now, but there is an unidentifiable set. The mass market easy dinner rags, the aspirational travel fantasy glossies, the servicey weeklies, the slew of general interest pubs that reserved a page or two at most in issues for a little writerly musing or on this or that, plus a cocktail recipe. And we've all seen it, right? I don't read a ton of food magazines, but I totally get that that reference, end quote. 
it is a little exhaustingly long, this article that I'm linking up for you guys. Unfortunately, there isn't a ton of meat to it. It does reference certain issues and why they were so revolutionary on the Lucky Peach side of things. Uh, with the hand-drawn lettering and beautiful comic, cartoon, poppy illustrations, and how places like Bon Appetit and Times Magazine all took note of it, and there's some funny side-by-side -side comparisons in the article where you can literally see that direct ripoff of styling of Lucky Peach. But it's just a fun little piece of content. Who doesn't like a disruptor story now and again? I do want to interject a quick giveaway. I actually have issue number three of Lucky Peach in front of me right here. This is the Cooks and Chefs issue. Um, if you guys want it, I'm giving it away in this episode, uh, because just to say thank you as a good, cool start of the year, uh, for you guys, uh, I'm going to leave this open until January 21st. That is when I get back from Europe. Uh, but if you go to my website and sign up for my email newsletter, screenshot that you signed up for it and send it to me on any social media. Uh, and that will enter you to win this issue. Uh, it still has the poster inside. Uh, it's currently going, I think this issue is going for like $75 on eBay when I checked this morning. Uh, I want to give this away for you guys, for being awesome listeners. And yes, this is a mid-show giveaway that we're doing right now. So justincana.com, sign up for my newsletter, which I'm rolling out this year. I really want as many of you as possible to be subscribed. Uh, and in return for you showing me a screenshot on any social media that you signed up, I will enter you to win this issue, and I will ship this out to you guys at the end of January. So Next up, uh, news that I'm not really going to spend a ton of time on. I just need to update this as the trend continues. Uh, Jerome Brochot of La France, a uh, hotel restaurant in the Burgundy region of France, has returned his Michelin star because it's, quote, quote too costly to maintain, end quote. And this isn't one of those stories where rising rents is the problem. In his town, he only has 20,000 people in the town, and almost 20% of them are unemployed which is shocking. He had to cut his kitchen staff in half, and he's having to pivot from his $130 tasting menu down to something much less expensive. And in doing that, he has also started to use less expensive ingredients to save on food costs. Uh, this is just an example, uh, unlike the others, of business savvy instead of ego, right? Saying, I'm not really that tired with the, the, the way the fine dining industry is right now. I just can't realistically serve Michelin quality food with only three people in my kitchen. Uh, he's basically saying, I'm changing my format so I can continue to cook. But overall, it, it's really sad to see it. It's unfortunate. And it proves that there has to be the right cocktail of factors that will lure people uh, to your kind of outside of the city destination, right? Like we've seen it with places like uh, Favikin, where you can have an outside of the main city destination and people will flock to it. Uh, but it isn't always the case. It, do it doesn't make you automatically cool just because you're not in Paris or you're not in Stockholm. What's up, Martin? Uh, next up, Eater asked its editors and journalists to do some predictions for 2018's headlines. A little bit snarky, but it's still funny to do and makes for a first, uh, uh, it makes for a good first week of the year uh, to read. So here's a few of my favorites. Uh, people who invest in restaurants start to think about safe work environments uh, and diversity of cuisines and gender of chefs more diligently before investing. Uh, major investors shift focus to female chefs to mitigate risk of scandal. That's a little bit savage. Uh, this is why we don't have nice things. Uh, male chefs complain that, quote, things aren't the same anymore. Uh, let's see. The sad, strange saga of how an ice cream shop's sexy cow logo ripped one New Jersey town apart. 
Uh, surprise, New Jersey's best Indian food is actually in Jackson Heights, Queens, and the list goes on. You can go ahead and check that out uh, if you want. The last industry story today comes out of New York, a story that I wasn't even uh, familiar with. Malcolm Livingston, who's the, who was the pastry chef at Noma, and he's also a guy I met at WD50 in 2011, I think it was, back in New York City uh, when I staged there for a week. He wants to become the next major chef to emerge as an activist for social change and justice. So he's moved back to the Bronx, uh, from Copenhagen. Uh, the project that Livingston is working on now is called Ghetto Gastro, a five-year-old four-person culinary collective with a mission, he says, to bring the Bronx to the world and the world to the Bronx. In practical terms, Ghetto Gastro makes money by organizing and executing high-concept events for major brands. The group not only cooks, but also often arranges set design, music, costuming, charging a base rate of $50,000. The median household income of Community District 4, where Andrew Friedman is located, that's where his uh, headquarters is, is $26,349. So for one project for Ghetto Gastro is literally double the annual, the median household income of that area. So hopefully you're starting to see where this is going. So past projects uh, include converting a 125th Street apartment building into a Harlem World experience for Airbnb, cooking jerked bone marrow with Martha Stewart for a Bank of America gig. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, he even also created an apple pie dessert inspired by Black Lives Matter because the killing of black bodies is as American as apple pie. Savage. Uh, they also served lines of freeze-dried coconut powder atop plexiglass plates, seeing how guests reacted to it thinking it was cocaine. So he's going very, very ambitious with this with this project and trying to kind of uh, be a little bit of a uh, renegade artist in, in this way with his, uh, with his food. But ultimately, Livingston says his goals with Ghetto Gastro are altruistic and that they uh, the goal is to reinvest their profits into their Bronx communities. He says it's, quote, the Robin Hood theory, steal from the rich and give back to the poor, end quote. And so a lot of this was in response to his time in Denmark, right, where the quality of life is so good. Uh, even taking in a, a shot at Noma saying, quote, if you hire a lot of staff, that doesn't mean you are actually doing anything for them, end quote. He definitely plans on having a small staff and taking care of them, saying he wants everyone to be able to have a car and an apartment and, and, and all of that. So to me, this is such a stellar concept, right? This is something so different. And it's not far from the kind of empowerment that comes from working at Noma, right? I, I, I feel like working at that place uh, gives you the vision to think bigger than just another restaurant or going off and doing your own restaurant. I think about uh, Daniel Gusti and his work with Brigade. He was, of course, uh, the chef de cuisine that went on to execute that project that helps kids have better school lunches here in the U.S. Uh, it's just a paradigm shift, right, from the traditional model where chefs... Uh, are lauded by the successes of their protégés restaurants, right? Like Thomas Keller's legacy was all about how many other Michelin-starred restaurants can people who came through his kitchens have. And with Renee, yes, it's still that, like people like Puglisi and Sanchez having phenomenally successful restaurants, but we're seeing more now, and that's refreshing for sure, uh, these people who are going off and doing things that aren't restaurants, who are still using their uh, knowledge with food to impact the world in, in kind of a different way. And it's definitely something that I'm paying attention to as we go forward into, into 2018. 
So last up and our kind of non-industry story today that I personally really enjoyed watching yesterday, Craig Adams, who is one of my favorite YouTubers, he just released his almost 40-minute long vlog from his trip to Japan as someone who had the same trip in 2014. I wasn't vlogging back then. I'm pissed that I didn't vlog that that trip, but it is it was my first trip to Asia. Uh, it gave me all the feels and definitely changes what you think a vlog can be. Uh, most vlogs these days are between like 5 and 15 minutes, but when you see an almost 40-minute long vlog, it feels like a movie when you're like halfway through. And I say kind of non-industry because there is a few food segments and beverage segments in there that will probably keep you, someone who's a chef, entertained. He's just a really solid vlogger, uh, someone that I'm looking to gain a lot of inspiration from in 2018, not just for his video uh, work, but for his business sense as well and his young and creative style of living life. Like The dude makes $100,000 a year through YouTube and gear videos and works on whatever projects he wants with full creative freedom, and to me, that is inspiring. Uh, I want to be the Craig Adams of the chef world. I'm saying it kind of here first. So with that, this has been episode 46 of The Emulsion. New year, new show, kind of. It was very similar to, to last year's. I, I like the way that we're doing the shows these days. Uh, but again, thank you so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any of the other content I do for you guys, uh, that's almost always free. Uh, if you're interested in supporting for as little as $1 per month, that is like less than that drink you bought on New Year's Eve. I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash justincana. There you get a ton of amazing access and behind the scenes and gear giveaways uh, for literally $12 a year. I would sincerely appreciate your support. And for everyone listening that's already supporting, thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, uh, I, I am doing the uh, Lucky Peach issue number three, Cooks and Chefs giveaway, go ahead and check out my website, justincona.com. Sign up for my newsletter, screenshot that to me, and we will get you set up. If you have stories you want covered on next week's show, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find them. Subscribe on YouTube if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or leave a review on iTunes. I would love uh, to get those five stars uh, pumping on that platform. Uh, regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears, so thank you. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.